Feminine across town and across the globe. Well, if you're new to the show, I'm your hostess, Karen Tate. Uh, I have been honored to be named one of the 13 most influential women in goddess spirituality, no doubt uh, in large part because of this show. And also, uh, they call me uh, one of the wisdom keepers of the goddess spirituality movement. I want to just thank you uh, for taking your valuable time to be with me tonight and uh, warmly invite you to partake of the sharing this show has to offer, a show many of you have lovingly called a treasure trove of wisdom for our time. And I want to just give a shout-out to Lisa Thiel uh, for that little snippet from her wonderful uh, repertoire of music, and tonight's uh, cut was called uh, Warrior Goddess. Well, I know from the demographics, uh, we've been picking up a lot of new listeners, uh, so if uh, you're just getting to know me, um, I'll tell you just a little bit about myself and what I do in the world besides being host here of Voices of the Sacred Feminine for uh, over a decade now. I'm also the author of several books. Uh, My fifth came out in uh, early December, yep, uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, It uh, was dedicated to Senator Bernie and Jane Sanders and uh, the visionary, so many of you may know uh, or recognize her name, our foremother, Rianne Eisler. Uh, It uh, is an anthology uh, that I like to uh, call um, The Sacred Feminine All Grown Up, and it's titled Goddess 2.0, Advancing a New Path Forward. Uh, We talk about how ideals of the feminine, like caring economics, sharing, nurturing, equality, fairness, health care, women's rights to their bodies, uh, an assortment of things, uh, become the new normal. Uh, to save the future of humanity and Mother Earth. And I'll tell you a little bit more about the contributors in the book uh, a little bit later in the show. Um, I've also authored the award-winning Walking an Ancient Path, Rebirthing Goddess on Planet Earth. Uh, My first uh, first book was actually Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations, which you you can actually use to drive your own sacred tour to goddess sites around the world, including a West Coast, Coast goddess pilgrimage, or uh, an assortment of other uh, sacred sites of the divine uh, feminine across the globe. Uh, One of my more recent uh, books was uh, called uh, Goddess Calling, Inspirational Messages and Meditations of Sacred Feminine Liberation Theology. That's really kind of a mouthful. That means um, the teachings of goddess set us free. 
And it also gives us some ideas to connect more deeply with God as his deity, archetype, and ideal, and, and understand how the spirituality helps us become better people and helps make the world a better place. And then, of course, uh, there's my first anthology, uh, a collection of essays from guests who have appeared uh, right here on this show. Uh, folks like Noam Chomsky, Rianne Eisler, Starhawk, uh, folks from the Capes for the Queen of Heaven series like Liz Fisher and Shirley Rank. Uh, Joan Marler was with me, Charlene Spretnak, Phyllis Chesler, Judy Grant, Laura Flanders of Grit TV, Gloria Felt of Planned Parenthood. And uh, those, um, those transcripts and essays uh, all come in, uh, in one book between the two covers uh, titled Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape Our World. You know, um, uh, we women uh, here in Los Angeles, we had a group uh, in the 90s. Uh, you know, a number of us would get together. It was a pretty famous uh, women's group uh, for a while. And uh, we would get together, and uh, hardly a ritual would happen without us uh, saying, down with the patriarchy, may patriarchy fall. Well, you know, we said that in rituals performed uh, in this group, and uh, I, I have to admit, looking back in hindsight, we didn't really articulate what we would replace patriarchy with. It was very nebulous, very vague. Well, um, I, I like to think my anthologies and books give us uh, a real clear answer how goddess spirituality can be relevant to reshape the world into one where we all have a wonderful quality of life and not just those who have been doing the domination and exploitation to achieve uh, the wealth and power that they've amassed. You know, we really do need to start taking responsibility for our own education because the political elites and the corporate media, um, you know, I think they've proven they usually just don't have our best interests as their priority. And that's why I've been trying to bring you wonderful guests to broaden our horizons, like Professor Robert Chesney a couple weeks ago discussing politics and journalism, uh, the economist and Professor Richard Wolff, you know, that way, uh, when you hear us talk about topics uh, that you might not be real familiar with or you haven't had time to research yourself, um, you know, maybe we can give you a little bit of information that helps you when the politicians try to double talk us or tell us, for instance, that they have to privatize everything uh, or they want us to believe that democratic socialism is a European evil. Well, you know, we'll know better and we'll understand that they're just, um, you know, spouting what uh, their corporate masters, uh, you know, want them to spout uh, to keep us ignorant, to keep us fighting each other instead of coming together in solidarity and collaboration and partnership uh, to make government work for us um, and, uh, you know, ensure that uh, there's more equality and justice instead of the suffering and austerity that's in so many parts of the world. However, uh, that all said, um, uh, tonight uh, we do go back to our roots a bit. Uh, tonight uh, I am happy to have returning to the show uh, Dr. Jack Dempsey. And our topic tonight is People of the Sea, Post-Minoans, Palestine, and the Bible. Uh, Jack has been with me uh, in uh, December and, uh, and also in November, and he's back with me tonight. We've sort of got a 
I don't know, sort of a pseudo-series of sorts uh, going here. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about Jack. Uh, Jack Dempsey, he's a writer and researcher, and he's been digging into the roots of Western civilization for 40 years. He became a writer in uh, New York Publishing, and uh, he uh, has written a novel called Ariadne's Brother, which uh, came out in the late 90s. Uh, he has a new book out uh, called People of the Sea, a novel of the promised land. Uh, we'll delve into what happened to the matrifocal Minoans and uh, where they went. Uh, we'll discover uh, Cyprus as a melting pot and uncover the identity of the sea people uh, with some new insight maybe into the Philistines. Uh, this story, though, would not be complete without uh, digging into the Canaanites, mm. the Hebrews, and the Bible. You know, it is all interconnected. So I hope you'll sit down with a glass of wine uh, and enjoy yourself and, um, you know, let Jack fill us in on all the research that uh, he's amassed uh, to write uh, the novels that uh, he's written and uh, just to pursue uh, his interest uh, into all of this. And uh, stay with me after the interview because uh, I have some news of some upcoming events, especially if you're in Southern California. Uh, and I know this weekend, uh, this weekend is a big weekend. Besides the inauguration, uh, we have protest marches all over the United States, just all over the United States. And uh, I just want to say I wish everyone well in these marches. Uh, I will have to live vicariously through you uh, because I'm actually teaching out of town this coming weekend. But um, I am with you a thousand percent. I have been waiting for this to happen. I have been waiting for people to get up mm -hmm. off their couches and get out there. So congratulations to uh, you folks okay. for finding your sacred roar. Uh, congratulations, uh, uh, you know, for finding your backbone and your strength. And um, just make sure you have tenacity because this is going to be a long four years. But you know what? We will win in the end. Uh, I have no doubt. Okay, so uh, with all of that said, um, I want to uh, turn to Jack and uh, welcome Jack back to the show. Hey, Jack, thank you for being with me. Thank you once again, Karen. Good morning from Crete. Happy New Year to everyone west of there. Uh, changing that to good evening. <laughs> well, and thank you for, uh, I, I mean, as you said, you are in Crete. Uh, there's a big time difference there. So uh, I, I appreciate you, um, you know, managing to call in at this hour. I know it's, uh, it's uh, you know, the wee hours of the morning there. So we, we appreciate your uh, your commitment and, you know, your passion for the topic to get up and put yourself out, you know, to do the interview. So thank you. Well, believe me, Karen, it's my um, pleasure. The list, of, the list of people you mentioned that have been on the show, it's only an honor to, uh, to be part of that, and I'm really looking forward to this. Okay, well, great. And, you know, I want to also I'll mention it now, and we'll mention it again uh, if it doesn't slip our mind. Jack's website uh, is ancientlights.org, uh, ancient, A-N-C-I-E-N-T, lights, L-I-G-H-T-S, 
uh, .org. And uh, that's a collaborative site where Jack explores Minoan Crete and Native and Early America with dozens of pages of articles, artifacts, images, music, forums, videos, and learning resources. So you will definitely want to go check out uh, Ancient Lights. There's a lot of good stuff there. So, um, so Jack, last month we, uh, you know, we, we started talking about the Minoans, and uh, we covered them pretty extensively. Uh, you know, lots of really great information. Uh, but, you know, the Minoans, uh, you know, they, they sort of cycled down, and uh, uh, they disappeared. So I guess that's where we're going to uh, probably uh, pick up tonight's conversation, yes? Um, you know, the uh, I think you call it post-Minoans. Yes, uh, tonight we're going to hit that word disappeared with a very big rock and crack it open to find that it isn't true at all. Uh, but 30 seconds, Karen, if I may, I'd like to uh, just mention to the audience tonight uh, that I'd like to, well, dedicate my part in this to the now late Dr. Charles F. Herberger, Jr., who passed away on January 14th near the age of 100. Uh, Herberger was a lifelong professor of American colleges uh, published widely, a poet and playwright. But in 1972, he published a little book called Thread of Ariadne, in which he proposed that the Minoans were a kind of a festival society organized around an eight-and-a-half-year cycle of the sun and moon. This organized their public life ceremonies and even their political power by vesting political leadership with limits. Okay, It's a very important fundamental insight about the true nature of early Western civilization. So I just wanted to mention in honor Chuck Herberger's name to say, look up his threat of Ariadne. It's a still groundbreaking piece of insight about the Minoans organization that has since then been very much corroborated by multiple independent scholars. He's a great wow. man. Wow, okay. Well, thank, thank you for that. So um, the, uh, one more time, the title. Uh, it's called The Thread of Ariadne, The Labyrinth of the Calendar of Minos, and it's available at Amazon. Okay. Okay, great. All right, so the Minoans didn't disappear then. No, and uh, as we crack that subject, uh, well, tonight's subject, the Sea Peoples Open, it's absolutely essential based, uh, based on the latest archaeology that we do go back to Minoan Crete to catch up in a quick summary way with the show that we did last time, Karen. Um, as, uh, by way of introduction, uh, could I lay out a couple of things that we think we know about the Sea Peoples and then what we're finding out? And I'll tell you why oh, it's yeah. important to know it at all. Well, yeah, absolutely. Much, go, might, go right ahead. Thank you, Karen. Uh, there's what you might call a loud side and a softer spoken side to the histories of the peoples of the sea. Uh, the loud side tells us that if you picture the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, that they came in like locusts from God knows where and destroyed everything in their paths for some still argued reasons, very mysterious. Supposedly, they were strangers to the Middle East. They burned and conquered their way in. The uh, Canaanites and Hebrews called them Peleset or Peleshtim for wanderers, but their real tribal name, or one of the central ones, was Pulisati, which gave us eventually the two words Philistines and Palestine. So that's uh, another idea of the words that 
became the number one enemy of the visible Wait, Jack, 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 hold on, hold on. Something happened in the last five seconds or so. Did you shift positions or something because you were very clear and now suddenly you're garbled? I'm sorry. Now I'm, I was hearing some kind of interference. Is this better? Yeah, yeah, you're 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 good again. Okay, so keep doing whatever you're doing. I'm not doing. Yes, thank you. Uh, so we we're told, or we haven't told, that the Sea Peoples became the number one enemy of the earliest visible Israelites, intending to conquer and remove them. That their culture was immoral, their religion and culture were foolish and like. Uh, are you going to be okay? No, you know what, Jack? Something is happening again. Um, is it just a bad Skype connection, or um, what do you? What's happening on your end? I don't know. It's perhaps that I have my uh, microphone up too high. Let's let me let me All bring right. that down. Just one second, okay. and I apologize. Okay, I'm going to resume, and you interrupt me if there's any problem, Karen. Okay, sure. And you know what? Go back and, re- and and just start at the beginning there because we lost some of it, just to make sure we have continuity. Sure, plenty of time. I'm all set up to move efficiently through, Karen. Thanks. Uh, if you picture the eastern Mediterranean, we're told that after the fall of the Minoans, the eastern Mediterranean, uh, after a couple hundred years, was invaded by a kind of locust-like wild force of displaced peoples and tribes called uh, the CP. I'm still hearing the static. Um, You know, there's uh, something strange happening. Uh, You know, you were fine for a little while, and uh, I wonder if it's just the bad weather or... Um, let's let let's give it a go. Let's see if it if it uh, let's see if it gets better. And if it doesn't get better, maybe we'll reschedule. Because uh, okay, the last couple times you were, last you. couple times you were on the show, we didn't have this problem. That's true. And it, another alternative is if it persists, I will simply call you back very quickly and see if we can refresh the connection. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I can put some music on while we do that. Okay, so let's go, let's go once more. We're told that the Sea Peoples were a locust-like collection of displaced peoples and tribes that virtually wiped out all the great cultures of the Eastern Mediterranean toward the end of the Bronze Age. And we were told that they were total strangers to the Middle East, that they were the number one foe of the earliest visible Israelites, that they were a boorish and warlike people without any real culture, and that's where we get the use of the word Philistines, they were advanced in war arts, in iron making, uh, and eventually they too were defeated and vanished and were erased. Uh, their role in history, and this is explicitly from uh, official historians of earlier generations, was simply to make the state or nation of Israel come about. So now we hear what we call the softer side, the more recent scholarship that is much more down in the soil uh, and into the very details in every aspect of the Sea Peoples. Uh, there were many reasons for the collapses uh, of the main Mediterranean civilizations at the end of the Bronze Age. Many of those tribes had been in the Mideast long before about 1200 B.C., all the way to the Jordan River on the very much uh, Hebrew and Israelite side of that region. They had a very uh, ancient and eclectic culture of the conservative people. 
And instead of massive invasions, what we're finding now is that they came in small bands of migrants uh, and mixed in locally with the Canaanite population. They helped to rebuild the whole area after the wreckage of the Egyptian empire had left it in ruins. And they re their role was really to guard the flow of trade between Egypt and the Far East. And we have definite physical proofs of that. So why is it important to know about the Sea Peoples? Well, there's three quick reasons, Karen, and then we'll go wherever you'd like to. One is that between the Greeks and who conquered the Minoans and the Hebrews who took over the uh, Sea Peoples, we see literally in historical terms the emergence of kingship, hereditary, lifelong, omnipotent kings that have misled us, I think, all the way down the historical line. And we can get, we can get new light on that process, changed and what we can change. The second reason is that at the time of the emergence of the Hebrew kings, first Saul and then David, there's a historian named Henri Frankfurt who talks about this was the moment where Western culture, as it was to become, split off from nature. We began to practice a kind of idolatry, believing in our own representations more than in the natural world and uh, we can observe. That has terrible consequences to this day. And finally, the sea peoples are important because as we recognize that they were feeble, that they had lives, that they had great achievements, we can break out of that central ethnocentrism that the Old Testament Bible has given to us by becoming our tradition. It's a model that is monological, one-sided, and it's not going to work. It didn't work then, and it won't work now. So the Sea Peoples offer us a new model of everything from nature to human being uh, that is even more historical than the Israelite story in that we can all see and share it. So, so Jack, are you saying the Sea People were the Minoans, or they, the Minoans were just some of the, of the Sea People? Well, I can tell you that if you study the cities and places of the Middle East, the coastline, let's say running from Egypt all the way up to Syria, if you study in particularity all the different studies of those places archaeologically, the most central cultural traits that hold these sea peoples together are, yes, identifiably Minoan. That's the short answer, and I can share some details of that as we tell this story tonight. And, all right, and you talked about, you know, they were still the people of nature, while the, uh, you know, the people who end up becoming, um, you know, the Hebrews, the people who end up becoming the, you know, the, the, the Jewish folks, um, you know, the, the Minoans were still nature-oriented. The, the, the Jews take us into this uh, kings and hierarchy. Um, why is it that, uh, I mean, do, is, is there a theory or uh, do we know why uh, the, the Hebrews won out? Is it they were just more, more violent and they overcame the, um, you know, the, the, the sea people? Because I would imagine, I mean, they, uh, you know, they were an advanced culture, you know, they, they probably, um, you know, had ways to defend themselves. I guess I wonder why couldn't they stand up and overcome uh, the, the domination of the Hebrews? Well, the answer to that is certainly 
in discussion in the professions today. Uh, I think you could say the short, we would we, we'll be able to understand the answer to that question probably, but well, I'm sure, by the end of this show because there are a lot of kind of details and events that spell out those answers, okay? But the short answer is that you have in the Middle East at that time of the historical emergence of the Israelites and the entry of the Sea Peoples. Are you hearing me okay? Yeah, yeah, you're good. Okay, good. At that time, you have what you can only call a multicultural polyglot civilization in that, peer, in that area that we call Palestine and Canaan and today Israel. You had the native Canaanites. Uh, they were related like cousins to all the Hebrew tribes and Israelites too, very likely. There was a lot, of course, of traffic between the spice roads of the east and the Mediterranean seacoast ports. And there was an immense flow of wealth going from Egypt through this whole area called the Promised Land and out the other side toward Babylon and even as far as India. Now, the unique thing, as we've been schooled about the Israelites, is that among all those cultures, it was the not the Hebrew, because they were early on very much mixing in with the local populations, but the Israelites, who represented a new extremely ideological uh, faction that whose, whose demand of membership was separation, separation from all these other peoples. We are different, we are special, and so on. Now, that's a model, as I've seen, I think we've seen, unfortunately, from history, that's a model that in the short term is an extremely useful organization idea. There's a bad people out there, we need to look out for them, even to conquer them, displace them, and so forth. It really is a disciplinary mechanism that has worked short-term and, yes, often in violent terms. That's why the first Europeans who came to colonize America had the Bible under their arm, because they knew the social model that it presented. What it seems, though, on the Philistine side is in one sentence like this. Historians, archaeologists have been baffled for a long time as to your exact central question, Karen. Why then, if they were more advanced and connected and so forth, did the Philistines lose this? And I think you're going to see that as the story unfolds, the conflicts with Israel, yes, become more and more bloody until eventually, after, interestingly, the Philistines defeat the first Israelite king, Saul, that's when they start to appear to back off the whole proposition. Now, this connects to why they were there in the first place, but it seems as though the Philistines prefer to, after some trouble, migrate away to other places rather than bathe the ground in their blood. I, I lost the last sentence. Are you saying they left the area, the Philistines left the area to the Israelites? Uh, interestingly, the Philistines were able to defeat the first Israelite real uh, attempt to fight them under King Saul. But then that is the watershed time when the Philistines begin to recede back off the landscape. The only answer is that they were not as willing to fight and bathe that ground in blood for the possession of it. They were there as agents of Egyptian trade traffic. They were not conquerors in their own right. So when they left, they were, as a sea-based people, very aware that there were other countries where they could go to live the way they wished to. 
Right, right. So really they were, in, in a sense, they were businessmen looking for a, a hospitable place to live to do their uh, you know, to to you know, raise their families, to do their business, and uh, it was probably just easier to live someplace else rather than around these extremists who uh, demanded, uh, you know, I guess that uh, they convert or die, kind of a thing. Yeah, although I think the some of the most interesting analysis nowadays, Karen, it has focused up until now on the idea that, again, the uh, separation between the Israelites and the Hebrew, uh, excuse me, the separation between Israelites and Sea Peoples was a function of ideology and culture. Uh, I've been working uh, for many years to look behind that because, for example, if you believe the Trojan War was about Helen and getting this woman back, well, you're ignoring all the economic dynamics of the control of the Black Sea trade in the same way, look below the conflict of the Israelites and the Sea Peoples and look at their landscape. That landscape is exactly a crossroads for the east-west trade. Now, the pharaohs, after they defeated the Sea Peoples in a huge battle at the mouth of the Nile, the pharaoh, Ramses III, said, you people are now going to settle in Canaan, which is a ruin because of my own imperial disasters there, and you are going to control those roads for me that lead to Babylon to the wealth of the east. If you don't, if you fail in that, then I will come back with all my Egyptian forces and smash the hell out of you. The Egyptians did this over and over again when the trade roads were bought. So the sea peoples for a while settled down, raised their families, and made that system work. That's what the archaeology is telling us, and I can give you specifics on it later if you wish. When the Hebrews eventually won and they became the uh, nation-state of Israel, there was problems again. We don't really understand yet what with the roads of trade through that region. And guess what? Egypt's pharaoh came back and smashed the kingdom of Israel to pieces. So that's the difference. So in smashing the kingdom of Israel, it was also the sea people that were uh, uh, were obliterated too, correct? Uh, yes, but to a lesser degree because, as I mentioned, after the defeat of Saul, we begin to see a retreat and decline of the Philistines' activities in the region. And by the time of King David, uh, which archaeology now, to whom archaeology now openly attributes the burning of most Philistine settlements, um, they were already well on their way elsewhere. So they, although there were many Philistines that remained for a very long time in the region, uh, and we have archaeological proof of that, uh, they did not suffer quite the impact that the Israelites did. So the Israelites, so basically the Israelites run. Uh, run out most of the Philistines, a.k.a. the Minoans, uh, and then they get it, then the Israelites get smashed by the Egyptians. Correct. Because hmm. the Karma. roads are not functioning as they're supposed to. Yeah, because, uh, okay, because the Sea People, the Minoans, were the ones that were keeping the lines of trade uh, keeping business going properly, uh, they get, you know, they get obliterated by the Israelites. The Israelites can't do the job, uh, so the Pharaoh comes in and cleans house. 
that is pretty much the pattern. And again, I can give you in detail uh, how we know the, the, the chief turning points of this story tonight. But we opened our conversation talking a little about the Minoans because I think part of the recovery of the Sea Peoples is, of course, to know what culture they did practice. Um, up until now, uh, analysis of Sea Peoples culture has focused on the decades when they were involved in many fights, uh, in many migrations and so forth, you know, in their so-called crisis years. But I think we need to look at them in a fresh way based on, well, once they did settle into re relatively peaceful standing on that landscape that we call, came to call Palestine, what kinds of civilizations did they unfold there? What had they brought with them, inside of them, and remembered well enough to make it their guiding principles of the civilization they built called Palestine? And, and that's quite a remarkable achievement. Well, well, let's we'll speak to that, and and also how long, you know, uh, w you know, after they migrate out of Crete, how long were they actually there uh, in Palestine before they, you know, they start to recede from history? Okay, uh, with a, a little more than a minute, maybe two, I can lay that right out for you. The, the Sea Peoples were, as every archaeologist uh, is writing nowadays, a conservative people. That means they had very strong memories and retained their cultural uh, icons and central meanings over a long period of time and over very difficult physical circumstances. Uh, we find this in their pottery, in their religious symbols, in the use of the double axe, in the four-horned altar, in the fact that we know that uh, women were very much welcome in their culture. Now, the culture that they're most drawing upon, uh, and again, interrupt me if you're not hearing right, Karen. The culture they're most drawing okay. upon are the, are the trappings of Minoan Crete. Minoan Crete was the first, longest, and most successful phase of Western civilization, roughly 3600 to 1400 BC. That's 500 years before the pyramids until the end of Egyptian imperial power, around 1200 and it's 1,200 years or so before Athenian democracy. We're talking about 2,000 years of relatively peaceful progress in Crete in almost every endeavor of civilization, despite earthquakes and other kinds of problems. Their culture was a kind of a dynamic, steady state based on the very attentive care of their ancestors' tombs, there's that conservative street, and for their eclectic international connections that gave them a cyclical view of reality, of why we're here. We live in the forever now with the cycles of the seasons and the planets moving to us. The Minoans were very gender egalitarian. They had the highest average living standards. They were high technology, great brilliant observers of nature, explorers, athletes. They had a large, free, landed middle class that had a military, but not militarism. And we know how to look for those signs even though other people have argued that, oh, boy, they were really centered in war, they, they lack the evidence completely. What we most have that's important tonight is the total lack of visible, visible kingship, hereditary lifelong, as I mentioned, male leaders. This is because in Minoan Crete they were fiercely independent, different cultural qualities. They were bound together with festivals, religion, with their athletic contests and their calendric cycle. They did not believe very much in the ego, in the charismatic individual, but rather in the doing of the ritual itself. And their um, multicultural culture, excuse me, but a multicultural 
centered on a female divinity, a great goddess. And this is repeatedly confirmed even now by in studies of the surveys by Peter Warren, by Jan Dreisen, all the scholars of the Agaeum series. Okay? So that is the foundation culturally of the Sea Peoples. And one of the words that's important for us to understand, uh, I remember on your show, Heidi Bittner Abendroff uh, and some other anthropologists, Peggy Sanday, Max Dashu, they're saying, what do we mean if we're saying they're matrifocal? Uh, there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the terminology for describing cultures that are solidly valid historically, but centered around women. I think, Karen, the best word we've found so far, thanks to Max Dashu, is matriculture. And what she calls is this, it means the power not of kingship or to dominate, like matriarchy, but rather the power to organize people based in mother right, mother law, mother origination, or as Dashu calls it, a social network based on the life support system of where life comes from. Okay? So these are, again, the sea peoples, very conservative, fiercely independent, no kings, very cutting edge in all the civilized arts, and yet they are totally displaced uh, by the eruption of the Santorini volcano and then by invasion by the Mycenaean Greeks of the mainland. So I'll stop there, Karen, and tell me where you're going. Well, yeah, well, it makes sense, you know, because here they are, you know, they're isolated in a sense on this island, and they're not yep. having to share space with people who are unlike them in their culture. Um, so then they end up, you know, moving east and end up in, I guess, what we would call the Levant today. Yes. And they yes. run up against this, you know, they, you know, they're trying to live next to people who, uh, you know, women aren't equal and, you know, and, and, you know, they're about kings. And I mean, and let's face it, I mean, what Moses came down from the mountain and, um, I mean, if, if I have my history right, I mean, I took a class once, uh, it, I mean, it's not, we don't talk about it much, but I mean, I think there was one of the tribes down there that didn't want to go along with, uh, you know, this, you know, this this new edict from Moses, and you know, they wiped out their tribe. So you know, we're talking about a violent people. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like you know, you're either with me or you're against me, kind of a thing. Um, so uh, it, I don't know, you know. So how do you live next to people like that? You know, I mean, it's probably not very easy and if you got someplace else to go where you can live in peace then it's kind of a no-brainer uh, I have to totally agree with you uh, just to mention specifics here for a moment uh, as the Minoans reached a, a peak at their cultural dynamics it's just unbelievable the different achievements internationally architecturally and so forth artistically that they were reaching right in the face of the worst periods of earthquakes that were knocking down their cities. They just kept rebuilding them better than before. They were not a kind of a tragic-minded civilization that the gods are hostile and so forth. Um, the, Cretan, the Minoan Cretan civilizations, its, it's true independence was coming to an end by around 1450, 1425, 1400, okay? Now, if I, just to go back for one second, if you now look at the latest datings of the great, massive, horrifying Thera eruption, that's around 1525 B.C. Within about a generation, Karen, 1480 or so, 
a terribly destructive period begins in Minoan Crete when all their leading centers that were aligned with Kenosis Labyrinth and its calendric system for holding their web together were burned, sacked, destroyed, pillaged. Uh, scholars still disagree uh, on the causes. Was it internecine fighting among the Cretans in the wake of the disaster, or was it the Mycenaean mainland taking advantage? Well, what we do know for sure is that by the end of that period, say 1400, the Mycenaeans were firmly in control of Crete. They turned Knossos and the other centers, which were gathering places and ceremonial centers for the clans, into centers of the expropriation of wealth. They were notorious for counting every last sheep and jug of wine and how they were going to turn it over into cash or other trade goods overseas. Very predatory society. And even though they were what uh, Jeffrey Rutner calls uh, a violent minority in Crete, they still managed to rule the place. And to connect with your point, Karen, yes, a great deal of the Cretans stayed there and toughed it out but uh, also a great number of them migrated overseas. When you're a sea-based people, you know firsthand that there are many other places and ways that you can live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that makes sense to me. I mean, if, 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 you're, if you're a sea-based people and, you know, it's part of your culture uh, <sighs> that, you know, you're, you're, you're not maybe tied to the land, so to speak, um, your roots aren't as deep, I think. You know, I think you can pick up, uh, you know, you can consider picking up and leaving more quickly. You know, just trying to think of the psychology of the people. And here they were, you know, the Mycenaeans come in. They have a totally different worldview. They go over to the Levant and the Palestine area, and they run up against these people who have a totally different worldview. I mean, it almost reminds me of Maria Gimbutas talking about the Kurgan invaders. You know, the Indo-Europeans coming down and, you know, over time and place and all of this, sort of just, uh, you know, they have this, this different, more violent worldview, and they sort of, you know, displace what we think were the matrifocal goddess-worshipping cultures. I mean, it's all of this uh, might-makes-right thing, you know, um, and, and, and look where we are today. <laughs> Well, you know, this is exactly, I believe, why all these things about the Minoans and the Sea Peoples are so important. It is the exact historical transition time where the two of the so-called great pillars, along with Rome, of Western civilization, meaning the Greeks and the Israelites, are founded. Are founded. And they're founded on these massive transitions from the matrix cultures that were matricultural as we've just used the term. Now, to, to, to finish our timeline into the sea, connecting the Minoans and Sea Peoples, uh, there was a certain degree of mixture, at least uh, early on, between the Minoans and the Mycenaeans, just like with the Hebrew tribes and the Sea Peoples. But if the sack of Knossos and the conquest of Crete around 1480-1400 was the Mycenaeans' first hurrah, their last hurrah, all of 200 years later, is the sack of Troy, which exhausts and destroys themselves, turning them into devouring each other. And all of a sudden, boom, the, the whole eastern Mediterranean is in tumult. Okay, So after 1400, though, here there are two parallel stories. One, the dominance of the Mycenaeans, who are raiding Anatolia and other uh, Cycladic islands uh, to bring uh, what you could call fresh capital into their badly designed system, 
and then the appearance of post-Minoans all the way around the compass of the eastern and central Mediterranean. Uh, what we're talking about, Karen, is, and I can name you some places, though, as you well said, we, we've moved from living in the forever now, which is cycling through the seasons and the cycles of nature, to what I call the catastrophe cycle. A charismatic individual, Saul, David, Alexander, Agamemnon, takes absolute power and within his own lifetime destroys the very thing he was trying to create. So we get a mile uh, of blood for every inch of progress. Whereas the Minoans were around in steady state dynamism for 2,000 years and going when the cards turned against them. That's right. the recovery we right. need to make. Right. You got it right, right, right. the first time. Well, and, and you know, and it's, and it's hard not to draw parallels to what we're going through right now, you know. Um, and with Trump's inauguration oh. coming up, <laughs> you know, yes. uh, it, 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 uh, I, I don't know. I couldn't help but think about him when you said, you know, when, when you brought up, you know, Agamemnon and, uh, you know, all, uh, you know, all of the other rulers who, uh, you know, were, were these, um, you know, autocrat, authoritarian um, sort of people who. Um, you know, that's not the kind of world we want to live in anymore. At least I don't think most of us do. Well, e even when people, re when archaeologists and criminologists reconstruct the faces from skeletons of the Mycenaeans, you know the phrase they use? A bunch of thugs. That's what they look like compared with the delicacy of the Minoan uh, the multicultural uh, person. Uh, I mean, if you describe what happened or what the Mycenaeans brought, you're, they're culturally ignorant, they're short-tempered, violent. Um, it, it's horrifyingly hilarious to see that we're still going through this. But again, I just yeah. want to keep it positive and say that the more we understand of our real archaeologically documented history, we are going to find out that, boy, we really have some elders we can learn from to find our way out of this. And I'm sure that yeah. by the end of tonight I can, I can show you why that is. Okay. All right. So, um, all right. So, where do you want to go from here? Um, I know you well, wanted to I'd talk like about Cyprus, Cyprus because Cyprus, yeah, uh, it it, sure. it plays okay. a it plays an important role. It sure does. Now, uh, let me just reconnect again. The Myce the Minoan independence is coming to a close under Mycenaean domination by probably at the latest fourteen hundred or so. Only lasts a couple of hundred years. But meanwhile, we begin to see traces of Minoans appearing overseas in almost every part of the Middle East, from Ugarit in Syria, big trading city, to the southern reaches of Canaan. The first name of Gaza, the city we still know today, was Minoa, because they were there for so long. Uh, the Egyptians have been bringing in Minoan painters and artists. Uh, under Amenhotep III, they had strong connections with the islands in terms of trade, reestablished once again. The Minoans and the Mycenaeans are uneasily getting along and even beginning to mix in some places. We find Minoan touches uh, along the northern coast of Africa in what was called uh, Libu or Libya, uh, places called Mersamatru or Panomos. In Sicily, we find Minoan influences through Cyprus where they're bringing artisans in to create cheap knockoffs of popular uh, ceramic styles. 
In Sicily, there's a place called Thapsos, which is definitely connected with Minoan refugees working out of Cyprus. Sardinia, the Cycladic Islands, the Trojans, the Carians, that is to say the peoples along the southeast of modern Turkey or Anatolia. We have all kinds of archaeological connections between those cultures and what was brought in Cyprus. Now, as you know, I moved to Crete myself, Karen, uh, about a year and a half ago, and I had a refresher experience in what it must have meant to these people who had such a beautiful uh, material culture. In other words, when you get in a boat to migrate, you can take very little with you. Uh, they had to take their culture inside them wherever they were going. And now here's a marvelous thing about Cyprus itself as times pass into now the 1300s BC. Cyprus becomes a huge melting pot in the way of many cultures. There are even some Egyptians there, Hittites, uh, Syrians, Canaanites, Egypt, uh, I mentioned Egyptians, and people from the Aegean civilizations. Uh, and they are finding in all kinds of different places new industries such as mining, and new ways to bond their cultures together. This is a thing that is characteristic of the Sea Peoples, like the Minoans before them. That is to say, they're culturally eclectic, even while they're extremely conservative. Uh, I'd like to share with you as an idea of how they did this with one of the, one of the most beautiful and dramatic passages I know of in all archaeological writing by an Australian woman named Louise Hitch Hitchcock. She's writing an article called The Architectures of Feasting. I mentioned that, that festivals and feasts were central to the Minoan organization, and that continued into their Cyprus years uh, with many people. But how did this work? Well, Hitchcock writes about a modern-day ceremony in, uh, near Mount Gerizim in Israel among a people called the Samaritans. They dig fire pits. They gather animals for sacrifice and feeding through a feasting of the people, and there's rhythmic chanting, uh, people begin to move together in all these different ways among the music and the dance. And Hitchcock writes, there's a purposeful formlessness where oppositions of pollution and purity, disgust and desire, subject and object, inside and outside all collapse. I draw closer, she says, to the fire pit. Then feeling the intense heat, I retreat, fearing the crowd pressing even closer. I repeat this again and again drawing closer and then pushing back through the crowd in a near panic. The chanting seems to have been going on for hours. Is it just one or a few minutes? Time loses meaning. I'm here, yet I'm also far away. She's talking about becoming completely lost in terms of her original identity among the, in the midst of the intensity of these ceremonial experiences. And she comes out at the other end, she says, transformed, changed forever. And these experiences, based in Minoan religion, without, let's say, a great interest in the ego, were able to meld these peoples into a new culture that, while they didn't articulate it in writing, lived it out uh, uh, for many continuous hundreds of years, even, finally here, uh, as they settled into Palestine, able, Karen, to rebuild immensely advanced stone-built cities. They had been living on boats for a couple of hundred years, and now they come into the Canaan-Palestine area, and they're raising a full-blown civilization off their boats. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I mean, they just they just literally, uh, they start all over again. Exactly. 
you know, it's kind of, you, it makes me think of the idea of the phoenix, you know, rises from the ashes, you know, from, from nothing. Like you said, you know, how much can you bring on a boat? And they carry their culture within them. Um, and then they, they had to, um, you know, pull it out of themselves and start from scratch and start all over again. Absolutely. Now, we, we mentioned some of the, I think it, it's obvious that there's going to be a very arduous journey of migration and cultural development involved here that involves a heck of a lot of cultural compromise and yet continuity, right? But now look at the other side of what happened here. Let me just tell you how in nuts and bolts the Sea Peoples finally arrived in what there was to become Palestine. Let's go back for a minute to about 1275. The Egyptians and the Hittites had been fighting over the Middle East, which belonged to none of them, for a long time. Because, again, they wanted to control the bottleneck roads of international trade with the East, from which wealth was just pouring for an age, and all the different cultures of the area were using those roads. Okay? When the Egyptians and the Hittites clashed at a place called Kadesh in southern Syria in 1275, it basically, this uh, stalemate exhausted both of them. The Hittites went into steep cultural decline, and Egypt was no longer able to control anything very much far beyond its borders. So guess what they learned as a result of this catastrophe? That it's a better idea to intermarry your cultures, which is a Minoan, Cycladic, Aegean idea all the way going back. That's 1275. 1260 is one of the best datings, if it ever happened, for what's called the Exodus, the leaving of various Hebrew or proto-Israelite tribes from Egypt, sort of whatever conditions they were in there under Ramses II. Now, after 1260, we begin to see, and this is documented over and over again in Israeli archaeology, a thing called a Gilgal, a shape of a camp seen from the air that looks exactly like the shape of a sandal made out of boulders. Now, you know from the Bible that uh, supposedly the Israelites, God promised them all the land where your sandals shall trod. And so they were gathering, it appears, east of the Jordan River and then west in camps that, well, ritualized their new militancy, their separations, their differences. They're beginning to build settlements in the highlands, meaning a settled life away from, uh, not away from, but based in uh, herding and some new agriculture. Tremendous amount of work and just uh, beautiful settlements that the Minoans themselves would admire. So as they settle in, there's this great city in the north called Hasor. Now, the great cities of Canaan were most responsible not for dominating their neighbors because they were always infighting, but rather keeping order on the roads, again, of trade. Around 1230, according to archaeology, Hasor is burned. You might even say from the inside. Its walls weren't breached. It happened uh, with some kind of a sudden strike from within. The Israelites in that area, called by Israeli archaeologists, um, Israel Finkelstein, a aggressive northern entity, took down Hatzor. That is the conclusion of the archaeologists because the destruction included not, not only the statues of Egyptian gods, but all the Canaanite ones as well, as if there was a religious and cultural purge going on here. Well, guess what, Karen? 20 years later, after the burning of Hatzor in 1230, Meneptah, the next Egyptian pharaoh, comes into the region in 1210, smashes the region open again, including listing in his uh, victory stella for the first time the name of Israel, that people. And meanwhile, his successor, Ramses III, 
finds himself in a great battle with these roving sea peoples, the militant arm of them, at the mouth of the Nile between, let's say, 1186 and 1177 BCE. So Ramses III defeats them, and as I mentioned earlier, orders them, I'm going to settle you with all the supplies you need in Canaan. You are going to restore order on my roads, among my little cities there, and you are going to keep my door. If you fail, I will be back to punish you. Believe me. And so those are the terms under which the uh, Philistines, Pulisadi, if you will, uh, settled down. And now we can really talk about their life story and finally what happened with them in the face of the Israelites. <sighs> okay. <laughs> All right. So what's the next phase? Well, I guess the, maybe the most important thing is to realize the centrality of the operation or not of the road system in that region. Because, again, as soon as the Philistines settled down, Karen, independent scholars have been documenting and puzzling over this sudden massive influx of wealth into Egypt. The priests of Egypt, of course, were behind most of their pharaohs and their military, telling them to go out and get the gold and all that stuff. Well, where is this wealth coming from? The only explanation is a, restore, a restoration of foreign trade with countries uh, of the Far East. Now, as the Philistines were escorting the caravans that were carrying all this wealth between Babylon, around Damascus, Mari, and so forth in the Far East, the Philistines were getting their share of it because, you know what, there's a uh, great lecture on YouTube by an archaeologist named Aaron Mayer, who has excavated at a city called Gath in the inland of Philistine territory. And you know what they find in incense burners from the Philistine temples? Cinnamon and nutmeg. He says at that time the only possible source of those spices was Sri Lanka near India. So that's how far the Philistines were probably traveling uh, to escort these caravans of wealth. And to support that work, they had their lives. They were building farms, small villages, then towns, then restoring the cities of Canaan with remarkably advanced architecture and industrial facilities. Uh, and I can then you know, talk some detail, if you wish, about some of the archaeological discoveries about the Philistines. But initially then, the function of the road system was based on their ability to get along with the peoples called the Ibaru, the, roughly the half of the uh, Jewish tribes who were living on the land for a very long time and mixing with their neighbors. Uh, one evidence of that is that uh, Abraham, when he supposedly came into the region and bought a tomb for himself, you know who he bought it from? Not from a Canaanite, but from a Hittite. So there were remnants of the interior, um, uh, civilizations all around them. Yeah, so it seems like uh, it was a, it was really a melting pot. Absolutely, and that's where the Sea Peoples could fit in quite well, as they did. Interesting. So, so where where what happens next, uh, Jack? Well, after an initial period described by many historians and archaeologists, where there was relative parity between the Israelites, the Hebrews, and the peoples along the coast. Uh, Here's how it geographically breaks down. Palestine originally stretched from about Gaza, the border of Egypt, all the way up northward uh, along the coast to a place called Dor, a little thumb of a peninsula at the present uh, border of Israel and Syria today. 
and it stretched about 50 miles inland to the upper plateaus of the Spinal Mountain Range. Now, the roads ran two ways, along the coast and then up into the northern mountains going to Damascus, where the big trade was, and then one that went inland uh, beyond the mountains and the Dead Sea to connect with the Spice Roads. And the, Minoga, the Philistines, rather, were facilitating good order on that road while building their farms and families into a very successful material civilization. But eventually, they began to have more and more skirmishings with the Israelites, uh, whose territory was in the highlands, along the top of that spine of mountains where Jerusalem stands as its capital today. Now, these raids uh, go way back in Egyptian records, saying that it's very dangerous to travel these roads toward the east because there are all kinds of highwaymen and robbers and this agrees with a characterization from the Bible that says that in those days, every man was his own law. Well, you can't operate that way in an international system of trade, so somebody had to be guarding the wealth as they moved through these regions. Samson, from the Bible, is one of the first people, but we're not sure anymore if he existed. Was he a hero or a kind of international maniac and criminal? Because he was the first one to both A, B, sorely attracted to Philistine women, even against the wishes of his own parents, and incredibly violent and hostile toward them. Now, the Israelites had settled in two main places of their religious centers, one called Shechem, where the tent of meeting of all the tribes was, and then Shiloh, where they kept the Ark of the Tabernacle. We're now coming down, Karen, to about 1050 BCE. The Philistines come up into the countryside after a lot of small skirmishes and trouble and burn out the place called Shiloh. In this battle, they take the Ark of the Covenant, and the Israelites, uh, the Greek cry is, to your tents, O Israel. In other words, we're shattered. We're not going to be able to do anything for a while. Take care of yourself, and we'll see what God will bring. This brings on Samuel, who during the resumed wars against Amalekites, that was an old feuding enemy of the Israelites, raises the military strength of the Israelite tribes again. And in the face of this development, Karen, interestingly, the Philistines return the captured Ark of the Covenant to the Israelite tribes. Now, the Bible tells us huh. that they did this because, of, because it was bringing plague and disease and problems into the Philistine cities. But look at it the other way for a moment. Suppose this gesture meant instead, okay, we've had our fight. Have you fought enough? Do you want to renegotiate? Here is some of your property back, and so forth. Well, the Philistines eventually were driven back out of the highlands. They were no longer strong or willing, strong enough or willing enough to uh, inflict the violence that the control of those roads for Pharaoh, after all, uh, dictated. So meanwhile, Saul emerges as the first king of the Israelites. Samuel the prophet warns his own people. He says, you don't want a king. He's going to take your children. He's going to take your agricultural farming produce. He's going to take everything you have and put it toward his own imperial state. And that's what they got. So to wrap up here for this increment, Aaron, Saul, nonetheless, for his great military challenge to the Philistines, was defeated, beheaded. His body was hung from the wall of a Philistine settlement up north called Bethshan, where they had a station for taking care of the road traffic. And yet, right there, they began to decline in the face of the advance of King David. So, Jack, um, you know, maybe it just depends on whose side you're on, because 
you know, one one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. But, you know, the, the very term Philistine has become, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's sort of become a derogatory term. Uh, but yet, you know, we have so much violence uh, by, you know, the Israelites. Who were the good guys and who were the bad guys? Or does it depend on when you're talking about and where? Well, I think if we're getting it right, the truth is in the middle. When there are incredibly divergent points of view, you're usually going to find that the truth is somewhere in the middle. As I mentioned, there was uh, really, and this is from archaeology talking, uh, for a very long time, a lot of mixing in family uh, linkages through marriage, through religious practice, uh, between the Ibaru tribes and the Sea Peoples. In fact, uh, one of the most common artifacts uh, found in early Hebrew archaeology is what are called Asherah figures the mother goddess that was very familiar, of course, to the Philistines and Sea Peoples tribes. Uh, those had to be buried, broken, burned as a token of membership in the new coalition that was to become known as the Israelites. But for a long time, they did get along. And even uh, as a, you ever hear of the guy Gideon from the Bible, the early warrior for the Lord? Well, his story itself, his original name was Jerub Baal. It's a compound name of Israelite and Canaanite um, nomenclature. He, in a fit of inspiration, let's call it, smashes down the idols of the ancestors in the midst of this Canaanite village. And they want to kill him, the whole community, for doing this. But they don't because he's very good at warfare against their old traditional enemies. So I'm just saying that I'm sure that there was a lot of brutality coming from the Philistine side as they tried to do their job, and they got sick of it faster than perhaps the Israelites did. Because, again, there's no other explanation for why the Hebrews, uh, uh, rather for the Sea Peoples to, you could say, decline and slowly begin to uh, become less effective and visible in the region when, in fact, they had the superior military and, and won the original war. So, and, and forgive me if you said this and I missed it because you're given an awful lot of information. All right, so so you're saying that they 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 got along uh, for uh, for a long period of time. They were intermarrying and all of that sort of stuff, and then suddenly they're not getting along anymore. Um, could it be said, uh, you know, it, it you know it's because of the ideology? You know, I mean, did one side get extremist or something and not tolerate, uh, you know, I mean, could they not find common ground anymore? I mean, was it a religious war? Well, think of how much they had in common. Uh, they were uh, a very closely knit groups of tribes. They had all had bad experiences against Egypt. They were all trying to plant and farm and build houses and trades, get into the landscape. They all reviled kingship originally, deeply spiritual, fiercely independent, and they all saw, all sides, the divine God in some form, either imminent for the sea peoples in nature or external and dictatorial from the Israelites. They all saw the hand of the divine in virtually everything that happened. But the sea peoples were embedded in the now culture, uh, uh, well, conditioned by the cycles of nature. And the Israelites, you might say, well, 
are going somewhere. They have an agenda. They have a future state toward which they are struggling. The code, the code of separation, yes, I, I think it had to make a difference. Because I'll tell you one thing, there's an archaeologist named Ann Killebrew who has published very close studies of these ethnic differences among the peoples, Karen. And what she finds is that the Israelites, the most ideological tribes in the highlands, were not even visiting or doing much kind of cultural exchange and physical trade with the Hebrew tribes of the Midlands, let alone the Philistines. So, one kind of quick example, there's a little city called Beth Shemesh, the House of the Sun. It's in the Ajalon, no, uh, in the southern valley, uh, near the southern end of Palestine or Israel. And it really is a kind of, a, or was, a kind of a fourth town. It was multicultural when uh, the original sea peoples began to do business there. But by the Israelite transition, it becomes a very well-built, because it's a ruin of a city, but a, a stock pen. And we find the kinds of animals there, almost any kind of animal you can name would have been contained there except pigs, because the hmm. Israelites did not accept the Philistines' enjoyment of roast pork. So there are religious, practical, cultural, dietary separations. And the word of the Lord to the Israelites in all this is, you shall not make any treaties with these people. You will not eat under their roofs as the end of feasting, as a way to meld them together. You will not marry them. You will not practice their religion, so forth and so on. So how can the sea people answer this? They try and they try. They can't get through. So I believe they began to leave as quietly as they came. Well, it sounds like a people who can't compromise, doesn't it? You know, um, it sounds like a people who uh, almost... I, this might sound extreme myself, but it almost sounds cult-like, you know. Um, you know, I've been watching a lot of stuff on television about um, the cult of Scientology, and they compare it to other cults. And, you know, one of the things that's um, uh, a kind of a hallmark of any cult is that their people think it's us against the world, you know, that they're so much, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, so much more superior than, you know, uh, the other, you know. Uh, and, and I don't know, it just, I don't know, I'm here, as I'm hearing you describe it all, in a way it, it kind of feels like, um, you know, a, 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 a people that want to elevate themselves and be special uh, and uh, be above it all um, to the extent where uh, that becomes more important. You know, it's almost like they wear their separation as a badge of honor uh, rather than uh, seeing collaboration, compromise, um, peace uh, as being more important. Well, uh, I'd like to quote you, uh, again, the historian of culture, Henri Frankfurt, on this matter. That's uh, something that's really important to understand about this transition, Karen. But there's a great irony at work here. I'm sure we all know that idolatry is one of the great sins of the Bible. You must not worship your wooden statues and your stone statues and all this kind of stuff. Well, 
What we know archaeologically, I'm learning more all the time, is not that the Sea Peoples and the Aegeans and Minoans, they didn't worship the sun. They didn't worship statues. They worshiped the cycles of nature that these things represent and were created mm-hmm. to represent. Now, when you get to the shift to patriarchy in the Greek world with the Wanax or king and in the Hebrew world with the king of Israel, suddenly we have what you could call an idolatry of the fathers. We believe so ardently in the promises from our own God, our own inside voice, that our right to this place is exclusive that we are going to walk over, ignore, even erase the humanity of other people in order to make it seem to ourselves as though it's true. So the representation, this is idolatry in its purest form, the representation replaces the literal reality of nature. It's a a solo, a a monological idea of culture and the purpose of human being that is based all around it, ironically, by multicultural mixing. Now, this finally in the Kabbalah and later Jewish writing, the East, it says, is purity. This is where the great purity of nature and the great external, not imminent natural being of God emanates from. The West, it says, is mixture. So they are aware of these conflicts that are generic, but as you say, compromise is the cardinal sin. Let me wrap just this passage we're in with just some words from Henri Frankfurt because it's really core about what the transition meant to us. He says, as opposed to the sea people's, uh, quote, kings who function mostly in the religious sphere as uh, officials of their ceremonies, the Hebrew king, he says, normally functioned in the profane sphere, not the sacred one. He arbitrated in disputes and he was the leader in war, but he was emphatically not the religious leader. The keeping of Yahweh's covenant meant relinquishing a great deal. It meant, in a word, sacrificing the harmonious integration of man's life with the life of nature. The biblical accounts stress the orgiastic joys of the Canaanite cult of natural powers. We must remember that this cult also offered the serene awareness of being at one with the universe. In this experience, ancient Oriental religion rewarded its devotees with the peace of fulfillment, Karen, in the here and now. But, he says, the boon was available only for those who believed that the divine was imminent in nature. And Hebrew religion rejected precisely this doctrine. It excluded the kings being instrumental in integrating society and nature. It denied the very possibility of such an integration. To he- and I'm almost finished. To Hebrew thought, Nature appeared devoid of divinity, was worse than futile to seek a harmony with created life when only obedience could bring peace and salvation. Every alleviation of the stern belief in God's transcendence was corruption. In Hebrew religion and in Hebrew religion alone, the ancient bond between man and nature was destroyed. So those who serve Yahweh must forego the richness, the fulfillment, and the consolation of a life that moves in time with the great rhythms of earth and sky. There were no festivals to celebrate it. No act of the king could promote it. Man remained outside nature, exploiting it for a livelihood, but never sharing in its mysterious life. That's the change. Wow. That's what it cost us. Wow, 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 wow. Yeah. Boy, that says it all, that's doesn't why this it? Is, and... That's why this history is so important. Yeah, and I mean, and, and we're still suffering the effects of that today. 
I couldn't agree more. Over and over, but it gets more intense. This is what the great feminist and poet writer Susan Griffin has described in a magnificent short book called Pornography and Silence, Culture's Revenge Against Nature. We want, supposedly, our representations to tell us what reality is, what should happen as we go forward, what progress means, this and that. But nature keeps answering us in our bodies and in the beings of other people and feedback from the ecology. Now, how many times can you murder the voices that are telling you, hey, wake up, hey, wake up? Like a serial killer, you're going to have to get more and more destructive and murderous and intense about enforcing that lie each time until finally, like Hitler in the bunker, you destroy yourself rather than come to terms with reality. So we're going to learn either by choice or by catastrophe. But nature, uh, as Terence McKenna famously said, the shale is full of creatures that will not that would not learn. Right, 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 right. Wow. Um and and I mean for anybody who's listening to this show and you know they think you know we're kind of just spouting ancient history. Uh I mean it's it reminds me of that saying, you know, those who can't remember history are doomed to repeat it. Um, you know, uh, we we really need to, uh, you know, to be able to face these things. Um, oh God, it it it. Well, we've talked. Karen, this is all. I think it. We, we've talked in the most positive terms possible about well, a very dark story where a quite positive, quite glorious human beginning, which still archaeologically outweighs anything else we've been told in schools, was there, was doing quite well. Then a mistake, what Barbara Moore calls a brief forgetting. We start to imagine that men all by themselves are going to come to the right answer rather than talking to the damos, the demos, the people, the many points of view. We cannot get the right answers from one, quote, charismatic individual. That is the sucker lie we've been sold once again in Donald Trump. Well, we better get back to our democratic roots and start to show that system that we want something else or we're not going to make it. Absolutely, absolutely. And, I mean, in, in so much of what you describe, uh, I mean, it, it, it sounds like, uh, you know, it reminds me of, you know, not just Judaism, but it reminds me of the religious right and, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, the, this need for domination, control. I mean, we know Christianity, too, was responsible for separating us from nature. Uh, you know, and, and you know, what, what, what has it done for us? You know, what has it done for us but, uh, you know, but bring, you, bring humanity misery, you know, when you think about it, you know, the disconnect, the separation, uh, yeah, it's it's enabled us to. You said uh, one of the things you read. You know, we profit from nature now rather than being in harmony with it. You know, nature is just something there uh, to make money off of. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, our values, our values, our worldview. Um, uh, we we need to we need to get back to this, and you know, and I I think Jack, you know, on a positive note, I think more and more people know this, you know, I I really do, um, you know, I think if Thanks if there you. were real, dem- well, you know, I, I mean, I, I think if 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 um if people were if, if if the people could really speak, if there really was true democracy around the world, you know, people 
you know, it, I, I think the, I, I think humanity is populist. You know, um, I, 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 I think they all are interested in the common good. You know, it's, I, I, I think it's, it's probably just a minority of people who really have to dominate uh, and exploit. Uh, you know, it, it, that that's who they are at their core. You know, um, I, I don't know. You know, maybe I'm naive, but I, I I believe that most of us could be happy, you know, very happy, uh, you know, collaborating and uh, integrating uh, rather than this the the high price of separation. If you know what I mean. Well, sure. And a guest that uh, a former guest that you mentioned, uh, Noam Chomsky, is never tires of pointing out the vast majority of close studies of polls of people around the world agree on the fundamentals. We need an economy that works for everyone. We need to decentralize power and uh, come to terms with nature in short order too. But it's this 0.1% that are carrying on this obsessive idea. Now, what what you could call it is uh, going on is hoarding. In other words, the, the top micro population of 0.1% have everything. Most people have nothing. Now, why does people hoard? Even in Minoan times, in the wake of their great thera catastrophe, we see closer and closer control of foodstuffs, food storage, valuable goods. You know, they were human beings. But in other words, the, the emotion underlying hoarding is fear. Fear is at the core of the transitions we're talking about. You will fear the Mycenaean king and do what you're told despite your own interests. You will fear Yahweh the Lord and do what we tell you or else. So I'd like, if we could, to connect this to an important question, Karen, in your introduction tonight. What are we going to replace this patriarchal worldview with? Well, just in general terms, absolutely, we need to define nature again as I think a a system of circles within circles, cycles that endow us in the present moment with its satisfactions, its consolations for death, not its escape from it. A definition of human being that includes many different ways human beings come at the world of being what they are. The definition of an economy, the Minoans, the Sea Peoples, Cyprus, these people teach us, reteach us the old phrase, sacred economy, economia in Greek. It's a household. It's a family relationship that creates, gives to something to everybody, and polices the human problems that inevitably come about because we are family related to each other. And ultimately then, the meaning of history we've got to redefine. Because history right now, as Frederick Turner wrote, is a suicide note. It's trying to explain to itself why this isn't working, right? But if we understand the idea of history, then we can take away, too, the hollow meaning of that word progress that has gone to, quote, justify so much. Karen, unless you state the goal clearly, you cannot possibly measure progress. It's a chimera. It It takes us nowhere. Rather, we need an idea of history as what Barbara Moore calls, again, a brief forgetting. We had a very successful matricultural matrix of Western civilization that was changed 
by violence, but now as we dig up the pieces by the best archeology span in the world, Karen, the pieces are flying together as if with their own gravity. They have an original unity that rings true right through the human spirit. So as we replace patriarchy with what? With human being. I think that's what they're gonna teach us most of all. Well, and, and, and I think, you know, just to kind of wrap this up, you know, I think it also goes to prove uh, the lies uh, that some people say that humanity has always been uh, violent and aggressive uh, and dominating, you know, and warlike, uh, when we know that's not true. You know, we, we know otherwise. You know, uh, it, you know, it isn't our nature to be this way. You know, um, I, I, think it, I think it's a learned behavior. Uh, I don't think it's a natural behavior. And, uh, and, and, and you know what? Even if we didn't have the proof that we had these civilizations uh, that got it right, um, you know, what would that say about humanity that we somehow couldn't get our shit together to do what's right for the most of us, you know? And, and that's why I'm so proud of the people who are out marching this weekend. Um, you know, I am so proud that people are finally getting up off the couch and they're not going to just keep staring into their phones playing Angry Birds, you know? I, I'm, I'm sad that so many of them are so afraid and and in distress about this. But you know what? If that's what it takes to get them up off the couch, then so be it, you know? Uh, you know, a democracy yeah. isn't a passive thing. You know, you have to get involved. Absolutely. That was the secret of the Minoan success, that their councils, their elders, their women uh, speaking, having well listened to their, quote, ordinary people, brought that feedback on how the leaders are doing. And if you weren't doing a good job, you were out. That's as simple as it was yeah. because they did not believe in the charismatic individual and the cycle we call the catastrophe cycle. But look, like with global warming, the jury is in. Uh, that's a scientific consensus, and there's a historical consensus, too, that, well, let's think of history as an experiment. One day, we're doing very well. The next day, we change it to these other principles, and we fail miserably. Which methods do you think are the ones that we should turn to now to find again our way forward? So here comes my shameless plug of the evening, but this is what Charles Herberger and myself have been working to show in that work called Calendar House, Clues to Minoan Time from Kenosis Labyrinth, which is at Ancient Lights, completely for free. And then my new novel called People of the Sea, a novel of the promised land, tries to show you that point of view of history we've seen tonight in human terms. Who were these families, individuals with, with emotions and memories and that? to, well, recover the reality of that part of the experiment. It really happened, it was changed, and we can change it again. That's why these things are so rigorously excluded from mainstream teaching. But look, you either look like a dinosaur and end up like one, or you grow up and face the music and end up a lot happier and powerful for it. Yeah, you evolve. You evolve. 
Well, Jack, thank you. Thank you for this uh, this this lesson of uh, the people of the sea. Uh, you know, it's been great talking to you, and um, uh, I think we ended on a high note. And I look forward to you coming back. You'll we're, we're going to shift gears uh, when you come back, and we're going to be talking uh, more about uh, some things closer to home here in the United States. Uh, because you specialized also in um, the early uh, Native American history of the United States, and that's that's what we'll be talking about when next you're back on the show, correct? Yes, thank you very much, Karen. As always, it's a total pleasure. I think that's going to be March 1st, but we'll cement that uh, that date down. But I, I just wanted to say how much I appreciate uh, the the opportunity to make some of this stuff known, and I hope people will kind of get in touch and begin dialogues that really take us forward. Yeah, I, I think it is really important that we understand there is an alternative history out there. You know, uh, you know the 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 history that we've learned in school. Uh, was the history written by the conquerors. But there is an alternative history if you look for it. Uh, and for people who want the alternative history of the United States, go to Howard Zinn uh, because, you know, you'll definitely see uh, you know, just the you know an alternative history of the United States. And yes, Jack, you are back on the show calendar March first, uh, and um, and we'll be talking about um, Native and early America and uh, lots of good stuff there too. Again, you know, probably what we could describe as alternative history. You know, not the stuff that we get in the history books, but oh, so important to know. Thank you very much, Karen. I'm really looking forward to it. And again, Happy New Year. Same to you. And um, I have to say, every day you wake up on Crete, know that so many of us wish, uh, you know, we're envious. We're envious of you there. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure how many people this will bring, but uh, my door is open, Karen. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Jack. Uh, and in, until we talk in March, uh, have a uh, have a wonderful winter, and uh, uh, we'll we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much, my dear. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Okay. Well, uh, that was thorough. That was thorough, and uh, I think that that really. Uh, sort of just brought it all together, didn't it? I mean, um, so much, you know, the Philistine, the Canaanites, the Hebrews, uh, the Bible, the Minoans, um, wow, and we did it in uh, less than an hour. <laughs> so thanks to Jack for that. Um, you know, I, and I, I wish I had asked him, and maybe I will next time we talk, uh, can we uh, track you know, can can we track back and know that uh, you know maybe we had some Minoans uh, in our history? I bet we certainly can. I bet we certainly can. These folks who get on Ancestry.com or uh, they uh, they do their DNA uh, would be really interesting if they could uh, track their ancestry, their DNA back to Crete, and uh, you'd know then I think probably that uh, you could very well have been, um, you know, part of this ancient culture going way back. Uh, I think that might be right. Anyway, um, 
let me see. Oh, yes, uh, I wanted to tell you about some upcoming events uh, in Southern California. If, uh, if, if you're in my stomping ground here, um, at the very end of January, the last weekend of the month, uh, there is going to be the Pagan Conference at Claremont College. Uh, very affordable. Uh, you can go all day Saturday and all day Sunday, and it is only $55. And the theme of the conference this year is uh, Visioning the Pagan Community. Uh, of course, they're talking about the pagan community in the future. Uh, what would you like to see? Uh, you know, or vision uh, for the pagan community. And uh, I'm actually giving a paper uh, called uh, Spiritual Courage, Partnership, and um, Caring Economics, an Antidote to Domination, uh, because I personally would like to see the pagan community grow up, mature, and uh, use what we know about goddess spirituality to help change the world. Because, you know, it's not just about... Uh, astrology or energetics or doing ritual or what color candle to use on your altar you know that's just goddess 101 you know but goddess 2.0 is you know how these values uh, very much the same values we've been talking about uh, in my introduction uh, the values we were talking about with Jack um, you know that uh, you know the Minoans embraced you know these are very much uh, you know goddess ideals goddess uh, cultures you know if if we pagans um, understand this and uh, you know we, we're already ahead of the curve in uh, embracing this alternative history knowing that uh, these other world views uh, do better uh, for humanity then shouldn't we be out there on the front lines shouldn't we be the way showers yes that is the point that uh, I will try to get across, at least with my paper, um, you know, I would like to see the pagan community grow up and be the spokespeople for these types of values instead of perpetuating this uh, patriarchy, this predator capitalism, this uh, rape of the environment, this austerity, this uh, suffering, uh, because it's, it's, it's needless. You know, it's really needless. We should not be perpetuating it. We should be doing everything in our power to change it. Uh, so there's that. And also, uh, February 8th at the Goddess Temple and Museum of Woman in Irvine, uh, I have my book launch party. And um, and I don't do book launch parties like probably book launch parties you've seen. This is not a, a thing where I just stand in front of the room and uh, read some excerpts uh, out of my new book. No, 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 no. I have never done a book launch party like that. It, when I do a book launch party, it turns into an extravaganza. You know, there's there's been singing and dancing and chanting and food and wine. It's a feast. It's a fete. Uh, this one in particular, uh, Rianne Eisler is actually going to Skype in. We have a nice ritual planned. Um, we have a visioning for the future. Uh, as part of the evening, uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So if you are in Southern California around uh, the 18th of February and uh, you're not on my email list, but you're hearing me tonight and you, this sounds like something you might want to uh, come and, and uh, participate in, it's totally free. Uh, we're going to be giving away a lot of free stuff. There's going to be raffles. There's going to be, um, you know, 
lots of uh, community um, camaraderie, revelry, uh, please do come. Uh, I, I invite you. Uh, February 8th at the Museum of Woman and Goddess, uh, Goddess Temple. So, um, before I forget, uh, there, here's a word uh, from Joe Carson. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature, separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree. And I came out of it. This, this is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Dare I say, isn't that just what we were talking about with Jack? But anyway, uh, that little uh, audio snippet you heard, uh, uh, that was a trailer for uh, Dancing with Gaia, Joe Carson's uh, feature-length documentary film. In it, she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of the goddess as Gaia. Joe Carson traveled to ancient sacred sites all over Europe and the Mediterranean to shoot this film. These spiritual sites from northern Scotland to central Turkey profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. If you've always wanted to see them yourself but you but haven't, this is an opportunity to experience some of the best ones and get their story. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini-book, which goes even deeper into the material. You can buy the DVD and booklet for only $20 at DancingWithGaia.com. And uh, next week, next Wednesday, uh, the last Wednesday of the month, uh, I will have Candace Cant with me, and uh, we are going to be talking about uh, pagan academia uh, with a specific emphasis uh, on Cherry Hill Seminary. Now, some of you uh, may or may not know about Cherry Hill Seminary, but... um, you will find out next week uh, because, you know, there aren't a lot of places uh, someone can go get a good pagan education. You know, usually we're self-taught or, um, you know, if we're lucky enough to, you know, live in a place where, you know, we have teachers and mentors, um, you know, then we're ahead of the, we're ahead of the curve. But uh, Cherry Hill Seminary, I believe, um, uh, I think it's a physical place as well as uh, an online institution where, um, you know, you can go and uh, learn about uh, environmental leadership, uh, military, ch- you know, become a military chaplain. Uh, you know, you can minister to military families. But, uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's really a place where you go and become pagan clergy. Yes, pagan clergy. Uh, but you don't have to. I mean, you don't have to be someone, uh, you know, with that is your only intent. Um, uh, it, it is a place to become pagan clergy, but anyone can take uh, the classes and broaden their knowledge of uh, all of these different topics. 
because heaven forbid when you're at uh, dinner with your um you know christian or jewish or muslim uncle and they say well what is this paganism stuff uh you know you can you know then speak to them and uh you know be impressive and uh and and get your points across and uh you know and you don't just have to talk about uh, what color candle you're putting on your altar uh so it that is for someone who's you know uh, kind of the pagan academic or the pagan clergy so we'll get into all of that with uh with Candace next week because i i do think uh we need more of that especially if um if what we loosely are calling paganism, uh, if we really do want to see us have an influence out there in the world because our values in many cases are the ones that we need to restore at the center of society, and that's what we need to replace patriarchy with. So, um, hmm, I guess uh, as we come to a close here, I I will... Uh, Ask for your patience uh, as I make a shameless plug for my own new anthology just out uh, in uh, December. And I'm happy to say includes uh, wonderful essays from leaders in our community like Ann Baring, Rianne Eisler, Starhawk, Carol Christ, and many other important visionaries, as well as new voices who will be carrying the torch for the sacred feminine uh, into the future. Uh, you know, they will be the ones teaching the sacred feminine liberation theology, explaining in relevant terms why goddess ideals uh, is the spirituality of freedom, fairness, evolution, peace. Uh, So it's called Goddess 2.0, Advancing a New Path Forward, because I think that is exactly what we must do. Uh, You can read more about it on my website, karentate.com. You can also get a signed copy from me. And uh, and if you're in the United States, uh, order a copy from me, and I believe they're only $16, and that includes shipping and handling if uh, you're in the U.S. of A. Uh, If you're in another country, I would say it's actually probably cheaper for you to go to uh, Amazon or one of the online booksellers and and get it from them. But if you are in the U.S., I would appreciate it if you would uh, get it from me because uh, then – uh, you know, the money doesn't go to the the multinational corporation, Amazon. <laughs> uh, and as I mentioned at the top of the hour, um, uh, the book is dedicated to Rianne Eisler and Bernie and Jane Sanders. Uh, and as you've probably heard me say, Bernie's ideals are goddess ideals. So let's reconcile our spirituality and uh, our politics. I hope you'll pick up a copy uh, and... Uh, you know, or while you're there at my website, take advantage of all the free stuff that's there, or look at the other books uh, that I have available. I actually have some great sales, uh, what I call book bundles. Um, I give you a better price if you buy a couple books, and I also have goddess greeting cards there, and uh, CDs, and the DVD Femme. Uh, so there's lots of stuff. So go to Karen Tate. Uh, dot com and go to the goddess store page and check it all out 
And uh, finally, before I say goodnight, I want to remind you to click the follow button on my show page here at Blog Talk so you get notice of uh, the shows that are coming up uh, moving forward each week. And as a reminder about how important it is to understand and practice the concept, what we nourish thrives and what we neglect withers. That goes for all phases of your life. Feed what nourishes you, and if this show nourishes you, if it gives you inspiration or insight, please feed it so it grows and thrives. Don't be one of those people that only takes. Don't be one of those people uh, who treat generosity from others like an ATM machine and only receive. Uh, That said, uh, say a prayer of thanks to Goddess before you go to sleep tonight. Thank her for the grace she's bestowed upon you in this life. Or you know what? Call a friend or a loved one or a family member and say thank you for what they've given you. Gratitude and appreciation are the gas in the tank of your life. It keeps you going. Fill that tank, and I think you'll speed down the road effortlessly. But only be a taker, never give back, and you'll find your life sputtering down the road, or you might end up broken down and crashed in a ditch. There you go. So, uh, in the words of Gandhi, uh, one of the mottos for the show, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. All right, that about does it for me tonight. Uh, Just a reminder, our guest tonight was Jack Dempsey and his website. Uh, You'll want to go there, lots of great stuff, ancientlights.org, ancientlights.org. And his new book is People of the Sea, a Novel of the Promised Land. And uh, find out more about Jack. He mentioned all the good stuff that was at Ancient Lights. So you'll want to go take advantage of uh, all the free stuff that he has at his website as well. And if you like Jack, he will be back March 1st, and we'll be shifting gears, and we'll be talking about the early history of uh, Native Americans here in the United States. All right, that about does it for me. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, let you listen to a little bit of music uh, to close off tonight's show as you finish that glass of wine. Um, This is Abigail Spinner McBride and her cut, Sacred Way. Good night, dear listeners. And if you're in the march this weekend, stay dry, stay warm, stay strong, and brave. Good night.